All right, everyone, welcome. It is another episode here at the Crypto 101 podcast. Pizza Mind hosting solo today, but I'm not by myself. I've got an awesome guest. We've got Brendan Playford, the co-founder of Masa. Welcome, sir. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thanks. Uh, happy Monday. Uh, it's great to be here. It's great to have you here. Before we jump into your origin story, give us the high-level overview of what you're building at Masa. Yeah, so at Masa, we're building a, a new form of identity protocol. Um, we believe that on-chain is the new online. And in order for a big migration out of our current sort of Web2 paradigm to happen into Web3, um, we need to have a standardized uh, on-chain set of identifiers um, that allows, let's say, the next billion people come uh, into this new ecosystem that we're building. And to really bring about more use cases beyond just speculation, we have to have a way of representing an individual's uh, identification, attributes, um, affiliations, behaviors, reputations, and sort of interpersonal characteristics in a really to easy in a really easy to use way. And that's what we're building at Massa, a way to represent all of your attributes in a Web3 context in a simple to use fashion from like an end user perspective and an easy to integrate and easy to use way from a developer perspective. Bringing those two worlds together means that we can um, have something that runs effectively because truly this might be a bit controversial, but Massa, we don't really believe many people uh, care about identity, as it were. They care about the value they get when they're in the Web3 ecosystem and really making identity be sort of part of the intrinsic fabric that uh, we have in the Web3 space today. As simple as like, you know, sending an asset to one another. We think that uh, identity or identifier should be built into your wallet and the way that you interact in the space should accrue a gradually increasing reputation so that you can get increasing amounts of value like you would do in uh, everyday life, but in a Web3 context. So an interoperable uh, identity platform uh, using soulbound tokens to essentially represent these different um, identifiers uh, on an individual basis. That's really cool. So we're going to jump into all that in just a second, but let's get into your background first. How did you get into this space and what were you doing before you came to Masa to solve this problem? Yeah, um, my journey into sort of Web3 or the blockchain or crypto community is crikey now, almost 10 years in the making. Um, I was in a small underserved part of the UK in 2013. Um, I'd been kind of revisiting some of my roots in like a white hack hacker group, um, exploring some IRC chats and came across uh, a lot of kind of interest in Bitcoin and altcoins at the time. Bitcoin had launched a few years earlier. Uh, we'd had Litecoin launch as well as a fork of Bitcoin and several other different forks of like the core Bitcoin core client with different consensus algorithms on, one of which was Dogecoin um, that was created as a bit of a meme and a joke as we all know and love now. I was one of the first miners of Dogecoin, uh, got a few GPUs together, uh, solo mined it in the first few blocks, did this along with many other altcoins at the time. And uh, it really gave me financial freedom from the background I come from. I managed to scrape together money for a small mining rig and the return I got on that mining rig was exponentially higher than the cost. Um, and I just saw this as a really unique way of giving access to wealth or wealth creation um, or finance in a way that somebody from my background or billions of other backgrounds globally had never had before. Um, and have ridden the kind of waves from that time to now up and down through the different cycles. 
really focusing on both as an enthusiast, a community member, and now as an entrepreneur in the space, bringing me up to today where, um, you know, I, in the 2017 cycle, had a, a decentralized um, protocol that had a different consensus mechanism to Ethereum, where we we're trying to create a horizontally scalable blockchain. I've worked in the credit space, building credit scores for people in emerging markets. And then Massa more recently over the last 18 months with this uh, desire to bring um, this sort of ubiquitous identity layer uh, to Web3. That's a hell of a story right there. Uh, as an old <laughs> IRC guy myself, uh, I, I love yeah. hearing that <laughs> mentioned. Pizza Mind is originally my IRC nickname from way back in FNET. That's so, great. That's great. Yeah. Super Sheeb or uh, Tesla Sheeb is, is, was my handle at the time. Um, and sort fantastic. of continues to this day. You'll find it lurking not, in some places. Not too many people know about all those those times back then. <laughs> Man, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I love what you were talking about, you know, going from online to on-chain. Uh, that's the, one of the best taglines I've ever heard. But if you, you yeah. know, rewind the clock back to, you know, the, the mid-90s in IRC, like we weren't even really online we were basically just kind of connected blobs from one server to another and they'd go down all the time and there was a concept on the internet way back in the days called net splits where the internet would literally break into pieces and as it would rejoin you'd have like new owners of stuff and channels and this was like a form of attack where you could like literally take over stuff Uh, and it was just madness but god it was fun uh it, it was a lot that of fun. It was to, a lot of fun. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about now, but it's yeah. not often I get to reminisce with someone who knows what I'm talking no. about. So. <laughs> no. The alpha, the alpha back in the day, which is very different to now, was always look at what pool Angelo was mining on and just mine that pool and you'd be good, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It was a simpler time. Times are much more complex now. There's many of us listening yeah. to say, well, why do we need identity at all? You know, this is supposed to be a decentralized private thing where anyone can interact with anything else. What is the whole point of having identity on chain? Yeah. Why would it benefit me to even do something like that? Yeah. So if we think about our interaction everyday life to kind of take a philosophical standpoint for, standpoint for a minute, you know, identity really for us today is an individual self of, or sense of self. It's a set of like physical psychological and then interpersonal characteristics that's unique to us. Now, as soon as you step into Web3 as like the new um, on online, you've got a wallet that represents a sending or receiving address for assets today. And that's pretty much it. If I'm sending uh, ETH to you, I don't need to know who you are. I don't need to know where you are. I don't know anything about you. All I need to know is the amount that I'm sending to you and your address, and I can send you money. Now, that's an incredible like leap forward from where we were before with transmitting any size sum of money, right? There is, from a true peer-to-peer perspective, there is no limit on that. However, if I start to transact with you over and over again, maybe there is this uh, sense that you in this context are becoming more trusted, in the same way that even in like the old IRC groups or in Discord servers, we all typically stand behind a pseudonymous username where we're, you know, uh, Super Sheep from my perspective or Tesla Sheep, um, Axe Hunter 57, whatever that kind of looks like. And we still get attributes and characteristics built up around that as a persona. And what we believe at Matter is that even though we want to have this sort of abstraction of 
pseudonymous identity, there is a benefit and huge value to as you build up your persona in Web3, you accrue increasingly more trust, reputation, um, and concrete examples of affiliations that go beyond identity. And typically, when people say identity, the first thing people think about is KYC. So we're not talking about KYC in this sense. We're talking about a more broad set of um, identifiers, as we call them, that make up um, who I am, who you are, who someone else is. And and our belief in this world, which is sort of similar to uh, Vitalik when he proposed the idea for Soulbound Tokens before, is that in the same way you're playing sort of a game online, you're playing this sort of projection of yourself in a Web3 context, and there is value to if I voted in Dow voting 15 times over the last 12 months, um, that makes me a strong community participant. Can we reflect the fact that I'm a strong community participant? I typically have more value in a community because I've done that Dow voting 15 times, for example. So we believe there is a way in which identity is actually bigger than just have I done KYC? Am I known by this entity? It's actually this collect- collection of attributes or affiliations that holistically make up who I am. And representing that in a really simple sense uh, using tokens or other identifiers means that the products we interact with and the platforms that we love in the Web3 space can engage with us more effectively, can provide us with more value. And we essentially end up getting more value out of this bigger system as a whole because of these different attributes. We just take it for granted in the Web2 sense that we are catered to in this way, uh, but really we're not catered to that way in the Web3 um, ecosystem today. So the best way to think of it is kind of like a user behavior profile. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, You know, holistically, my identity is a lot of things, right? And yeah, it's more of a, a, a user or a behavior profile attributed to your core point of interaction with, with Web3, which is a wallet of sorts, um, and giving you the ability to share specific attributes of your profile with whomever you want to get access to certain things. That makes sense. You said uh, a term we haven't really heard on this podcast very much, soulbound tokens. Can you give us a high-level overview of what that really means? Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you think about identity in Web3, everyone sort of goes to... I'm going to repeat this, KYC. Um, KYC typically is done by a third party, the uh, tester or the issuer of the KYC, like maybe that's the government. It's then verified by someone and then the user can uh, get access. So if I want to kind of go to a bank to get a new bank account, I provide the issued ID I have to the bank, they verify it, I can then get access to this new bank account or whatever that looks like. Um We think that when you look at Web3, there are a couple of different technologies that have been used to represent the same process. Uh, Verifiable credentials and uh, decentralized identifiers have both been built to essentially replicate that same process on chain. You can take an off-chain data source, have an issuer say that this is uh, true, like a driving license, uh, qualification. Um, That gets verified on chain, and then I can share that with you. For example, you maybe want to give me an uncollateralized loan because I have given you my identity, so you can come and collect from me if I default on that. I've given you my address, for example. Now, that's all well and good, but the notion of these kind of systems means that it's not doing a few things. Um, It's not providing uh, 
an easy to use implementation. It's providing everything. Everything is private by default. Um, and around a year ago, uh, almost the day, Vitalik sort of released this um, thought piece, thought leadership piece around uh, Solvent tokens, which is what we're talking about here. Um, around 18 months ago, we started building Massa with a way to um, attribute credit-based data to a user's wallet. So let's say, for example, you want to go to Aave, you want to bring your FICO score from the US, like let's say it's 750. You want to show that the wallet that's interacting with Aave or another protocol has got this credit score associated with it. What's the best way of doing that? And we basically would mint an NFT that could not be transferred. And instead of having an image attached, we had a score attached to the image, essentially. So you could sort of show by having this NFT in your wallet that you had a score of 750. Really simple, right? Um, Vitalik kind of came around and said, well, we could, in the same way in World of Warcraft, a soul goes through their World of Warcraft journey. As you get achievements, affiliations, sort of certain wealth, you could have these soul-bound attributes that are permanent to you and your kind of avatar, or in this case, your wallet, that gradually show all of these different like dimensions and affiliations. Uh, so soulbound token in its like simplest form is a non-transferable NFT that has a link to uh, specific data or uh, an on-chain bit of data that says something about you, that your uh, World of Warcraft score is X, that your credit score is 750, that you were born in 1992 or 1988. And what we saw here was a huge opportunity to take um, data, represent it as a token, um, and then build some additional information around it. So a soulbound token from Massa uh, is not public. It can be public and private. You can store data on or off chain. So we took this notion of a non-transferable NFT. Uh, we built uh, an EIP, an Ethereum improvement pro uh, proposal around our SPT that we're in the process of submitting with our white paper. And uh, it allows for a really nuanced sharing of data around an NFT that is non-transferable. So you can see that a user, for example, we could see that you have a FICO score today. Um, we could request the FICO score from you, and then you would give permission uh, to have that shared with me, for example, if I'm a lender or, or a DeFi lender. That's a really powerful concept that I think is going to be really important, especially in places that don't have the credit system in the U.S. Maybe they have no credit system at all, like in Latin America, because... It was abused so much, they just simply couldn't build anything. But there's a big movement trying to have under-collateralized or non-collateralized lending, especially for people in Latin America and Southeast Asia and stuff, and give people really their first chance of having credit in their entire lives. And that's such a huge game changer that we in the West just take for granted, being able to get a mortgage on a house as opposed to having to save yeah, exactly. up for half a lifetime or your entire lifetime and buy one in cash. Um, yeah. it's just a nightmare that, um, we're very close to having a solution to, but speaking of nightmares, how do we make sure that this on-chain credit doesn't turn into a social credit system, but instead it's just yeah. used to benefit humanity? Yeah, it's a good question. And for those of you that now go off and, and read, uh, Vitalik's paper, Finding Web3 Soul, you'll notice in there that it's very much focused on data being public. Um, and from where we came from, we're thinking about, okay, this is like this vision for on-chain attribution or showing your kind of identifiers that we had to keep 
you know, a lot of it private. So how do we achieve this open system where people are interacting in this kind of trustless way um, with pseudonymous identity in a way that protects privacy and prevents um, like a social credit score from being created, for example. Like if all of my data was publicly visible on chain, which without privacy protecting measures um, would be the case, uh, there's nothing stopping me from being kind of ranked or blacklisted from certain services without my consent. And definitely in certain corners of behavior, there's a good reason for that, like certain nefarious behaviors like child trafficking, uh, other blacklists like this, where there's definitely a good case for blacklisting certain wallets that maybe transact in certain ways. But for the general person, they want to get a really valuable service and they don't want their identity to be abused. People do care about, when we say people don't care about identity, people don't give a shit about identity, but they give a shit about privacy. So if we think about privacy, you don't want people turning up to your doorstep. You don't want you know, a lot of this information online. Uh, you don't want the state to be building you know, models around your data. I think this is one of the biggest concerns about this sort of notion of FedCoin coming out from the US is all of this spending behavior that's very, very public or very transparent. Could that be used to, you know, in this social credit system way? So what we've done, we built a system in which the user really does have control at the right point in their journey to give uh, their data to a third party. And it makes it really difficult for the third party to, let's say, aggregate data over 200,000 people or a million people that would be required to build a social credit score. So really keeping that private and making it very selective in the way that data is shared with the third party is one of our kind of first principles, uh, which should, you know, really negates the idea of having a huge data set that can then have one of these more, how would I put it, invasive uh, kind of uh, models built on top of it, which um, very much against our philosophy and, and views. That's really good to hear. So amongst the hustle bustle of our busy lives, my wife and I are always on the lookout for ways to streamline our daily routines without compromising on the quality of our meals. And that's where factor comes into play, perfectly aligning with our desire to save time amidst our hectic work schedule. Now, Factor's array of delicious, ready-to-eat meals, expertly prepared by chefs and approved by dietitians, simplifies eating well every single day. And with over 35 weekly options catering to various dietary preferences like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, you know, Factor ensures we're well-equipped for the week ahead. And the convenience of having nutrition-packed meals and over 55 add-ons delivered directly to our door transforms weekly meal planning into a delightful experience. And, and guys, real quick, Factor has a two-minute meal as well, many of them. And it offers us the luxury of enjoying restaurant-quality food in the comfort of our own home, ready to heat and eat at our convenience. The broad selection extends beyond meals to include snacks, smoothies, and everything else, right? Covering all of our little hankerings and cravings throughout the day. Now, look, the service's cost-effectiveness when compared to takeout, paired with the assurance of nutritious and delicious options, is what makes Factor a no-brainer for me and my wife. Um, and it should be a no-brainer for you, too. Now, what truly sets Factor apart is its flexibility, meaning the option to choose between 16 to 18 meals per week, along with the ability to pause or reschedule deliveries, ensuring that the service adapts to our ever-changing schedules and not the other way around. We're in charge, right? The no prep, the no mess meals, uh, guys, it's just been a game changer for us. 
and now we're able to focus on what matters most, building our relationship together without the hassle of meal prep and cleanup. So if you're ready to embrace a week filled with effortless, feel-good meals, then visit factormeals.com slash crypto10150 and use the code crypto10150 for an incredible 50% off your first order. Don't miss out on this opportunity to elevate your meal time with Factor's fast, upscale, and easy dining solutions. Again, that's crypto10150. That's the code at factormeals.com slash crypto10150 and claim your 50% off discount today. Hey guys, TiVo here with a quick ad break to tell you that today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some of the much-needed clarity in the finance world, thus helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Some of the things I've learned from these guys include planning for my tax bills, managing finances with your partner, making a balanced budget, saving on travel, planning for some retirement, and boosting my credit score. If these things sound interesting to you, Make sure that you listen to NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And just as an example of the benefits of having some of that data be public, I think the Bored Apes collection is a really good example. If you're holding one of these things, um, you know, you could have any reason for doing so. But what we've seen happen is... Other NFT founders and other companies are profiling the type of user who holds a board ape and is then is airdropping certain things to them for free to get their attention because they've now had a kind of user profile saying, okay, if you can afford a board ape, you must have serious money to spend, you must be interested in being a community, and you must be, you know, essentially quote unquote one of the cool kids to have this thing. And therefore we want you in our community, or we want to say, now this person is holding a piece of our collection. And there's yeah. all this intrinsic value that was just created out of nowhere, not even on purpose, just because they were exposed or that type of data was exposed, that they were a board ape holder. So this is one of the things that can happen with soulbound tokens as well. Um, Absolutely. Without even necessarily having a specific, you know, art collection, it could simply just say this guy has, you know, repaid his Ave loans a hundred percent or exactly a huge DeFi whale that transacts, you know, a hundred million dollars in monthly volume for whatever the wallet's connected to. We have no idea who actually controls it, but we know they're pushing a lot of volume. We're going to airdrop them governance tokens to our new platform and hope they move some of that volume over there. Just exa- exactly. examples of yeah. what can happen. Yeah. I'll, I'll pull on that thread a little bit more. Um, we have a, uh, a 2FA uh, SBT. Um, it's called Massa Green. It's a kind of play on Twitter blue. Like getting verified for Twitter means you're not a bot. Getting verified with Massa Green means you're not a bot. Um, in sort of GameFi, especially like the pay, 
the play-to-earn GameFi games, 40% minimum of the players are bots, um, all trying to extract maximum value from the max amount of rewards they can get from the system. Um, I don't know if you've seen any of Steppen uh, farms in uh, certain countries where they'll literally have like rocking machines that will rock the uh, devices to essentially gain the system, even though they're supposed to be anti like uh, gamification or, or anti fraud measures in place to stop that from happening. It's, it's still, it still occurs from randomization of the movement. Um, with a massive green to FA, if any developer was to look at our massive green smart contracts today, you could see a pool of users that had all gone through and done device-based uh, two-factor authentication. You would know that 99.5% of those users were not bots, and there's a very high cost of like high cost of fraud to become a bot out of those wallets. And you could, for example, know that you're airdropping tokens to an individual who's a human at the end of it not a huge bot farm. And that's going to improve the performance of your token when it goes onto market. You know that you're getting distribution into real people's hands. There's a lot of benefits that come from that. But there is no phone number stored anywhere. There is no personally identifiable information stored on these servers. All we have is a token that represents that uh, Bob has completed two-factor and we know that Bob is not a bot or we know to a very high degree of certainty that he's not. That's awesome. That's, yeah, really powerful. I don't know if you know this, but you're the very first founder that we've ever talked to that's built on the base blockchain. That's Coinbase's <laughs> brand new layer two that they've just put out uh, a month or two ago. What was your thought process in deciding to build over here? And what are the benefits that you've received so far for building on base? Yeah, it's a really interesting concept, right? Um, if we take a step back, and we think about all of the different chains that are being built, we typically see this sort of quite tribal picture of the space where a lot of true decentralized proponents will want to see smart contracts on Bitcoin, but then the purists will want to see Bitcoin just as a store of value and for transacting value and not actually have smart contracts come to Bitcoin. So we have Ethereum. Now, Ethereum is very decentralized in the way that it provides a foundation and bedrock for support. Coinbase base has one sequencer currently running on the uh, Optimism stack, which arguably makes it limited in its like layer two decentralization. So it's layer one decentralization settling down to Ethereum becomes um, becomes decentralized at that stage. But we just saw a huge opportunity for the hundred million or so users that Coinbase has. Coinbase is going to be throwing as the market leader in the U.S. Uh, context a huge amount of resources behind making this happen and contributing to the space as a whole. They have a great vision from moving from a single sequencer to a decentralized sequencer in this particular part of the layer two stack. Um, and while I think there are still going to be significant scaling pain points with, with layer twos as we reach adoption, knowing that Coinbase's North Star is to bring their 100 million centralized users on chain it makes sense that base is going to become, for a lot of people, the first experience of Web3. So if you think about the typical kind of Coinbase user, they're likely not using Uniswap. They're likely not using SushiSwap. We've got some users using the Coinbase wallet, which is a great kind of step into the ecosystem. But then you're experiencing like high gas fees on like Ethereum. You're experiencing bridging issues going into maybe um, uh, one of the other layer twos. 
Uh, even going to Polygon, you've got to use a bridge to go there, and that becomes very friction. Uh, there's a lot of friction that gets introduced into the user experience for these users that are not new, that, that are new to Web3. So we figured that, you know, to go with the tide and, and where the current is flowing the best, especially around like typically user numbers right now, where growth is going to come from, uh, base is going to be this hugely fertile ground over the next three or four months, probably up to a year, where their Coinbase's effort is going to be bringing these users um, on chain as the new online, like we started with. That's kind of their mantra, which I think is really good. Um, and for us, building on an EVM compatible chain, which base is, it's super user friendly from a developer's perspective. Lots of good existing tooling out there. Um, being able to tap into these new users and give them an experience that they really get delighted with low fees, easy settlement, uh, great sets of tooling from like a user experience perspective um, really makes sense. Uh, and there's a lot of excitement at the moment from those people that are building in base and a lot of support from Coinbase for those building on base that just makes it a bit of a no-brainer. So from a user perspective, when you're thinking about the lowest hanging fruit for the first billion users, they're going to come from these on-ramps. Um, and Coinbase being the on-ramp into a layer two um, is just hugely valuable uh, right now and reduces a lot of friction. So building there to take advantage of the user growth provide an identity solution to all those Coinbase users in a decentralized format and manner um, and really catering to a, you know, a new to Web3 user. So as they have a great experience, they come in and can get a lot of value through using Solvent tokens. That's an incredible vision that you have to be able to see where that, where the ball's going and be able to be there so quickly. So I commend you for that. Uh, but Thanks. we don't really know much about the base blockchain. You know, is it the same user experience as an Ethereum or a Polygon, or does it have some unique features yeah. that make it easier to use for the average person? What do we? What should we expect yes. when we get our hands on it? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, if you've used Optimism or if you've used um, uh, one of the other layer twos, Polygon, uh, so on and so forth, you should expect the exact same uh, user experience. Uh, more integrated, I think, with Coinbase Wallet than what you'll see elsewhere because of that native support um, and significantly less, um, um, significantly lower gas fees. So what we're seeing at the moment, which is not what we should expect to see in real life, is you know one ten thousandth of the gas fees. That's going to increase as adoption happens, uh, like we saw on the Arbitrum airdrop. Uh, gas on Arbitrum when the airdrop was happening was actually in excess of Ethereum for a window of time, which just shows this like layer two will get expensive. And then what do we do next? This is where I'm like, are we really solving these problems? We're actually just increasing transaction space as opposed to necessarily solving the scaling issue. So we're solving the transaction space issue. That's reducing fees. We're going to see it go up. But the biggest benefit you're going to get is um, full integration with native Coinbase apps from like a web two perspective. And then much, much, much lower uh, gas fees, which is just going to create a playground for liquidity, to be perfectly honest. Like, I can just see the fact that liquidity is going to move into Coinbase, onto the base blockchain very quickly as we get things like Uniswap building on uh, base. Uh, many of these other, like OpenSea, will eventually go there. These platforms will go to where the users and the liquidity is, and it will give the exact same user experience on day one for existing Web3 users, users. And then we get to see what comes up for like, Web2 users who are coming into Web3 will have things like EIP4337, like a, a account abstraction, giving a more Web2-like experience 
in a uh, non-custodial wallet format for Web2 users that I think is really exciting on some of these uh, layer twos. But yeah, typically what you'd see on Arbitrum or Optimism, yeah. Got it. Do you think Web3 even should be built on some of these shared blockchains or are there other derivatives like Tangles and hash graphs and DAGs and yeah. even, you know, Cosmos app chains and side chains that might be a better place to deploy and scale? Because like you mentioned, I mean, yeah. if only one airdrop is going on Arbitrum and it becomes expensive, it almost defeats the entire purpose of existing. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> to be quite honest. I mean, no, no yeah, slight against slavery. Arbitrum. We've had off-chain no. labs on the podcast, and we love those guys. Lots of respect to what they've built. But you've got, you know, like 12 or 15 layer twos for Ethereum now. And if none of them are solving the problem, dot, dot, dot. Where do we go you know? from there? But yeah. you know, there's already yeah. fully functional DAGs. There's already infinitely scalable chain webs and all this other stuff yeah. that isn't being built on from an application standpoint. And users are not being directed there. As someone yeah. who's building, you know, you <laughs> made your thesis very clear. Like, I'm going to follow the industry leader in Coinbase. Okay, I can't argue against that at all. But why is Coinbase <laughs> doing what they're doing instead of building on something they can actually scale? I don't yeah. know. Yeah, it's, it's I don't a, know. I don't have that it's, it's a really good question. Yeah, and I built a DAG in the past. So the uh, the blockchain I had in 2017 still exists today. It's a directed acyclic graph with a novel consensus mechanism using reputation-based consensus to mm -hmm. provide throughput. And it, it hasn't inevitably with the team and the community has like established as much um, traction. Like this is the way that I look at it. I look at the fact that Ethereum was the first mover and on day one, it attracted a lot of liquidity. And if you look at how difficult it was to build on Ethereum four or five years ago and how easy it is to develop on Ethereum today, we've got a lot of the initial like usability problems from a developer perspective out of the way. We haven't yet solved scaling problems with Ethereum. I'm actually very long-term bullish on Ethereum above everything else because I think Ethereum will figure out the scaling problem. I actually can't tell you what that looks like. I just know that there are quite literally the smartest minds in the space working on Ethereum today. And if we think about going back to the way the web was in the 90s, like I was dialing up in 1996 with a bonded ISDN line, um, hosting files for Napster and doing other stuff in the back end. And it was such That's a hardcore. limited experience. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was such a limited experience. I remember modem binding back in the day. That was nuts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we're going back like over 30 years now. Um, we were only 10 years in. Um, and even in the mid 2000s, the web experience was still a long way from where it is today. And I, and I do think we have, we, we have to figure out like what is the web equivalent in decentralized technology where there is a common infrastructure through which everything flows through or a common layer. And that layer has to scale in the same way that like fiber optics and you know, high throughput, like country to country connections allow scaling. 
even even Africa up to like a couple of years ago had limited fiber connections to the UK and North America, which meant that latency, no matter what you did, was going to be difficult in country. And it wasn't until new cables got laid down that it got better. Now, I think Ethereum has the potential and then Bitcoin as a store of value to become the domains on which asset and assets and value are stored for Bitcoin, applications and data is stored for Ethereum, and the layer twos are a wedge or a, or a bandage to get there. Now, if we're building on a layer two, we're then interoperable with Ethereum when it eventually does scale. Um, so I'm, 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 I'm not entirely sure why have DAGs not been adopted because you cannot replace the tens of millions of hours that have gone into or billions of hours that have gone into developer tooling for Ethereum and the amount of mindshare it has from an EVM perspective. Uh, even if you look at Cosmos and other platforms, Cosmos and, and Wasm sort of base platforms are unique in their own right. But it's really difficult to recreate that mindshare. Like for, for example, Definity, which four and a half years ago was going to be this, you know, internet computer ICP. It just hasn't been able to get the mindshare and the momentum with developers that any other EVM chain has. And, you know, you reach a point where there's so much inertia to get to the point of where Ethereum is that it makes it very, very hard to catch up. Um, and we now need to be thinking about scaling systems for Ethereum. And that's what these layer twos are doing. They're like, how can we take this existing stack, move developers up slightly into this like extension, bring users here and solve some of these problems. Uh, but I think Ethereum will ultimately, you know, solve a lot of these issues in the long term. to be perfectly frank. It seems like it's the protocol that's been chosen by the people. And I don't have to tell you this, but the best tech doesn't always win, uh, which is no. why we're not <laughs> right. all using, uh, you know, modified Slackware versions that we had to take a class on in high school in order to build. Yeah. Um, but hey, yeah. so hopefully Ethereum will get there. As you mentioned, the smartest minds in the space are working on it. Um, I did just see there is an EVM compatible DAG layer one that just came out the other day. It's called Valari. And that's pretty interesting. Interesting. So, Monad is super interesting as well. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a super interesting thing to keep around. Monad. I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. Um, so there yeah. are, so I wouldn't call them layer twos, but kind of like, not Ethereum clones is the wrong term as well, but I would say EVM compatible um, alternatives yeah. for things that really, really, really have to scale like crazy. Uh, and they can't exactly. do Yeah. So definitely interact with Monad so that you get eligibility for the airdrop. That's the bit of alpha I'll give you today. It's like, just go and play around with it. Be one of those people that have had an active wallet on Monad. So well, when airdrop, we're two of the it. five people that have heard of Monad. So tell the audience <laughs> what Monad is so they can get, uh, they can get in early. Yeah. It's a, it's a horizontally scalable. I think it's, I can't remember the exact transactions per second, but it's a very interesting approach to providing scalability uh, with an EVM compatible layer. Um, and the people that are driving the development are a very interesting, like smart group of engineers and talented team. Um, so yeah, take a look at it. Highly scalable, um, massive throughput and completely EVM compatible, which is, which is what's so exciting about it. You can essentially migrate any EVM developer into it. And, and you can get going immediately. That's I think it's monad.xyz is what it is. 
I think that's correct. But we'll, we'll double check it and uh, include it in the show notes. Um, this has been a lot of fun. You know, before we let you go, leave us with some words of wisdom as a crypto OG who's been around, seen everything, done everything. We're in this crazy time in existence right now where it seems like a piece of bad news that could have crushed the industry and been the worst thing to happen all year is almost happening on a daily basis now, whether it's coming from the U.S. government, the European government, uh, some kind of technical failure or market manipulation. I mean, we're just getting hit from all angles, yet Bitcoin is still rising, still charging. The hash rate breaks all-time highs almost every day. What's the real truth of where you see this space going? Oh, boy. Um, interesting. You know, going back to like the continuous stream of FUD, and, and let's kind of focus on the two anchor pieces from a US context, Coinbase uh, with, their, with their letter from the SEC and then CFTC with, with Binance, right? So I think we'll be sitting here in a year and a half, two years. It could be longer. The time is actually hard to uh, define. Just with Coinbase having shaped what regulation looks like in the US, actually taking this as a moment to lean into the system and define what does regulation look like from a US context and it providing a positive outcome. I think those people that know realize that like that's the likely outcome. Every bit of action that we've seen typically with a big institution has led to a positive outcome from certainty when it comes from regulatory perspective. We're still battling this like gray like uncertainty even as like especially as a founder you're doing all of these things where you're towing this very careful line between like extra legal and potentially illegal in certain contexts. Um, and you don't really know exactly where you're playing uh, in a lot of these things. So the Coinbase in the US context, I believe with a lot of conviction, will bring a ton of clarity uh, to the space in the US. And I just hope the US takes it as an opportunity to build out a more robust like ecosystem and, and bring mind and talent back to the US. From Binance, Binance will be slapped with an absolutely gargantuan fine, I'm sure, by the CFTC. Um, and they will tighten up a few loopholes and they will continue to be the reigning champion uh, for all other markets. Um, CFTC will get their payday. They will uh, receive some money from, from, from Binance, like somewhere probably between like 500 million to a billion is my guess, like complete wild ass guess. And all you got to do is go back to 2017 where EOS, who raised $4 billion over the course of a year, in their continuous ICO got slapped with a $25 million fine from the SEC. ICO regulation kind of became a little clearer. People didn't push the envelope and everyone just carried on as normal. We now have different manifestations of kind of the same thing, I think in certain respects. So an overall strengthening and clarity driving outcome will happen from this. I think a lot of people just are starting to see that. They're starting to realize that this does not mean the doors are coming down on the house. Like the, the gates aren't shutting. The gates are still open. Nothing's really changing. These particular actors will be either made an example of or, or be regulated or drive regulation. And clarity will come from that. And, you know, there's a stronger case for systems that are truly decentralized and independent as a result of this, which is really, really exciting, like, especially on the Bitcoin side of things. And with the backdrop of like, all of the banking uh, fragility that we still have today, even though the U.S. bankers, the, the Federal Reserve has like pumped more money into the system. A lot of people are just singing, you know, shaking off the news, 
realizing that this is a stronger case for what we're building um, and the market and the price action is reflecting that. And yeah, I'm, I'm very bullish at the moment with the backdrop of all of what you covered. I love the optimism. That is fantastic. <laughs> no pun intended. Um, <laughs> Hopefully not misplaced. I don't, I don't believe yeah. it's misplaced. <laughs> Uh, I don't either. That's why we're in this space. and We've dedicated our lives to helping it grow. So where can we get involved with Massa? Check it out. Get started. Yeah. A couple of great starting points. Um, you can come to our community through Discord. Uh, or the first point is like through Twitter. Just uh, get Massify. We're looking at updating that. But I think you'll probably share the links in, in the description. We have our ambassador program open at the moment. So if you want to be more participatory, you can join our ambassador program. It's open for applications, I think, for the next couple of weeks uh, for the first time in around a year. Um, you can participate in the app itself. We have three places that Massa is deployed. We have it deployed on Ethereum, cross-chain, across five chains. Um, you can mint your own SBT. You can participate in airdrops, incentives through the app. Uh, you could also participate in our Celo ecosystem and then in base as well. We're doing a, a base domain name that's launching this week. Uh, if you mint on the testnet, you'll get an allow list spot for the base mainnet launch and you'll be able to get your kind of base uh, ENS through Massa uh, on base as well, which we think is going to be really high value for people. So Discord, Telegram as well, although Telegram is sort of becoming second to, to Discord these days. And just check out uh, our Twitter to keep up to date with us. And, and thanks so much for having Fantastic. me. Today. Love it. Well, thank you so much for spending the last 40 minutes with me. It's been great to pick your brain. Likewise. Uh, we'll definitely have to have you back when there's some big updates. So please come back. Sounds great. And until, until then, uh, everyone listening, stay tuned for another great podcast coming at you later this week. That's all for now. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.